Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gong, the podcast hosting conversations about the earliest stages of startup sales and all the fun stories that come from companies with little cash, no precedence, and lots of guts. My name is Adriel, and as always, I will be your host today. And I've been selling stuff for a very, very long time. If I were to try to count the number of buyers that I've talked to over the phone or in person, I think it would be near the 5,000 mark of people to whom I've tried to sell something before. And that ranges from everywhere. It must be more. It must be 10,000. Everywhere from conferences to phone calls to emails to LinkedIn messages to cold outreach and warm introductions. And I, all of these people, no matter what they're buying, whether it's the raw honey business that I started in eighth grade and grew throughout a 10-year period through e-commerce, or whether it's currently self-driving cars, all of these different buyers are really just looking for one thing, solving their own problems. Sometimes they know they have a problem. For example, when we're selling raw honey, folks know that maybe they're sick or they're eating too much sugar in their tea and their coffee, and they know that's a bad thing. And so then they want to get raw honey because they heard about it, we came at the right place at the right time, had a conversation, and were able to help them solve that problem. Sometimes we're helping them solve a problem they don't know exists. With Romer, a company where we were building a way for landowners to bring people onto private land, kind of like Airbnb does with apartments. Airbnb is a great example. Apartment owners didn't know that they had the problem of not making money from their apartments when they were on vacation. Same thing with Romer. Landowners with beautiful ponds stocked full of fish didn't know that they had a problem, that they were not making enough money by letting people pay 50 bucks a person to go fishing at their pond. So we had to first educate about the problem, create a new category, and then help them solve that problem. And regardless of what stage they're at or whether they know or don't know their problem, buyers are only working for that. They don't care about you, they care about themselves and their own problems. And the best way to understand that is first, fail by probably trying to sell yourself too often instead of really talking to the buyer about what they want. But second is to ask questions. Ask questions of your buyers, ask questions of other buyers, get to know how buyers think, get to know what it is that they're looking for, what kind of questions bring out their problems uh, and, and understanding all that. And that is exactly what we got to do on this episode because my guest today is a buyer. He's a big time buyer. He's a professional buyer. And this man has bought a whole lot of stuff. Our guest today is Sam Trachtenberg and Sam has been a VP of operations or a COO at companies as big as Adroll, which is a massive company with a budget of tens of millions of dollars where Sam was buying products to help facilitate the work of hundreds and hundreds of employees, big ticket items, millions of dollars of expenditure, and where the sales cycle that company selling into Adroll knew that it all stopped with Sam or whether or not they knew it, it did all stop with Sam. So. We talk about how at Adderall on a massive company like that, sellers who were successful approached the selling process. And today, he's the chief operating officer at Where To, a venture-backed startup where same situation, a few dozen employees, but it all starts and ends with Sam. Sam has been on the other side of a sales conversation hundreds or maybe thousands of times. If you include the cold emails this man gets, uh, he has seen pretty much every trick that a salesperson has read in any sort of book. So talking to Sam about what happens on the other side of the phone 
was really, really interesting. We talked about what the conversation looks like when his team says that they need a product and how his decision makes. We talked about stories that he has of terrible sales processes and salespeople who just didn't know what they were doing and fumbled big, big accounts, or even salespeople who thought they had a win, who got a check, and still Sam believes they left money on the table or did something very, very wrong. Understanding the buyer and their needs and learning to speak this buyer language is all there really is to early stage startups. You gotta learn what the buyer wants, you gotta build a product for the buyer, you gotta market where the buyer reads or learns or, or works, and then you gotta sell to the buyer in their own mother tongue. And I loved talking to Sam because it gave a peek into what happens after the call, after the cold email, after the product's been built, how does the buyer think about things? So uh, anybody listening who's trying to sell, who's trying to crack the code of that one big account, think about throughout this conversation what the person on the other side of the phone that you're working really, really hard on now is thinking. Who else are they going to after the conversation? When you hang up the phone and you think it was a good call, think about why the buyer thinks it was a good or a bad call. What was successful for him or her? Who are they gonna go talk about next? Is there a Sam Trachtenberg-like figure on their end and they're gonna have to go run this budget by them? Is there a boss or a manager or another employee who needs to sign off, a whole nother department? Does that department even know that your, your client, your prospect is having these conversations with you? How can you get them brought in? So this whole conversation, if you would like, substitute Sam's name and Sam's voice for whatever prospect you are working on right now. And I'm so grateful to Sam uh, for opening up the playbook that he has and helping companies like ours get a little bit closer to people like him. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with the very, very clever Sam Trachtenberg. Sam, welcome to the gong. Thanks for having me today, Adriel. Oh, we're going to have ourselves a good time today because you, my friend, are going to tell us all the secrets of buying stuff. Love it. Yeah, you're going to make it easy for any listener of this podcast ever to sell anything to any company because you're going to answer all of our questions, right? Looking forward to it. See how it goes. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk quite a bit about what a buyer is looking for because in your role as a COO and a buyer of a lot of products, you've been through that a lot. So I want to start with kind of the context of what it is, what it means to be a COO and specifically what you did at Adroll and then what you're doing here at Where To. Perfect. Yeah, so at, as a COO, um, the role of COO can vary from place to place. And uh, it, you tend to be, you can, you can do anything from uh, running back office like, like um, HR, finance, and in other departments, as well as being in charge of hiring. You're basically the gatekeeper. You can, you're, you're in charge of hiring, unfortunately firing, uh, buying things, and approving the purchasing of things. So at, at where to, for example, I'm in charge of, of our, our OPEX. We don't spend a dollar if it doesn't go through me. And I'm in charge of the P&L, uh, closing uh, financials at the end of, end of month, uh, working with all uh, vendors who are trying to sell their products or services into where to. And because we're small, I'm also doing uh, engagement management with some of our larger customers. So owning the executive relationships with some of our customers. 
So you don't spend the company doesn't spend a dollar unless it goes through you. That's right. How involved? How early do you like to get involved with buying decisions? I like to get involved pretty pretty quickly because I don't. I'm, time is king around here, so I don't want anyone in our company wasting much time if for some, uh, evaluating tools that we may not even have the budget for, or that we know that strategically don't align with what we're trying to do. So um, again, because where to is a 25 person company, if we're interested in a new technology, um, I meet with the CTO or they'll, they'll just send me a Slack, um, could be the product manager and say, hey, I'm interested in this, this technology, for example, a reporting tool. And I'll say, okay, give me the details, what, you know, how much does it cost, what is, what is the use case? Um, and then what I'll try to do is, is ask around a couple of people and, and usually within 15, 20 minutes, I know whether it's something we should look at further or not, and then I say, keep going, let's, let's go ahead and evaluate it. And at that point, someone on my team will look at it, maybe I'll, I'll be brought in to look at it, but most of the time, uh, it'll be kept within the product engineering, if it's an engineering tool, they'll say this, and they'll conduct their evaluation, they'll say, yep, this is exactly what we need, then that's when I come back in for the negotiation. So I work out payment terms, contract uh, terms, and so forth to give where to the most leverage that we possibly can, even though we're 20, a 25 person company. Now it was a little different at Adroll, right? At Adroll, you guys are considerably bigger. Yeah, at Adroll, we had 500 people when I was there with uh, locations in seven markets internationally, and all of the procurement ran through my team. So um, including the sales tooling, and for that, it was a lot to manage. So we, we had cost centers and we had budgets associated to each of the cost centers. So when, uh, what I learned quickly was that a lot of the teams needed help with the procurement uh, process. They didn't even know, they were inundated by vendors and they didn't really know how to evaluate uh, these tools. So what we did is we, we lended our perspective, our resources in the uh, central operations team or, or I helped myself in, in running these processes with these vendors. So when a salesperson is selling into say engineering, for example, at a larger company, uh, like an Admiral or a mm -hmm. 500 person company, how should they think about the role of the operations team behind that engineering team? If I'm selling a product that I know engineering is gonna use, how early do I wanna be bringing in operations people or the other folks that might be responsible for the decision there? Yeah, I think, I think from the beginning, you wanna, you wanna first sell the value to the users, the primary users. So if you're selling into an engineering team, you wanna sell them on the value of your product. If you're, if you're selling GitHub or, or something like that, like, like Jira, then the, obvious pretty, the value is pretty obvious. So then what you wanna do is figure out what, what their buying process is like. Are there, are there security considerations? Is there an infosec assessment that they have to uh, fill out or run through? Uh, is there a budget for this, this purchase? So these are the type of questions I would just ask. Does product engineering, for example, know answers to most of those questions, or is that the point at which uh, we got to bring in operations? Because different companies are different ways. Sometimes they'll sell into a Fortune 500, and things are so isolated there that they'll say, yeah, I think we got budget, but let me put you on the phone with accounting, or I have no idea what kind of uh, security requirements we have, but I'm sure there's something. You know, We're a Fortune 500. How do you like to build organizations? How much knowledge does the actual... Uh, discipline have about how they're going to be able to buy things, what they're going to be able to afford, what kind of requirements there are before they buy something. Yeah, I think I think if I was giving guidance to a seller, it would be identify who the decision maker is, 
and then uh, establish whether they have a pre-existing product in place already and when the renewal, when they're coming up for renewal and when they have, if they have the budget available to make the purchase. Having those inputs will, will really inform the, uh, the seller and how to navigate a larger organization. So let, let's, if we can, talk about a kind of a specific story because mm -hmm. I'd love to hear from behind the scenes what happens. Somebody pitched your engineering team what did the engineers do? Let's think about something specific where they, uh, where you ended up buying the product. Did they, they, do they come to you with a fully formed presentation and say, hey Sam, we need this much money, it's gonna do this for us, or is it they go grab a coffee, Sam, we just talked to this person, they're kind of clever, we think it'd be good for us. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's definitely informal. I think, uh, I think you have to give people, in particular your technical teams, the flexibility to test out new tools and to innovate. And if they feel that, hey, we need this product, then my first question is gonna be, do, did we allocate the budget for it already? Does this product display something that we have? Is there any way, or, or also, can we save money somewhere else? If the answer to those things is, is uh, no, this is a net new addition to our budget, then, then so be it. Then, then I'll just say, okay, um, what kind of deal structure do we need here? Can we sign up for it? A three-month trial to ensure that, that we use it, that it performs as, as needed. Um, can we can we pay uh, quarter to quarter, or can we do a three by nine where we try for three months and then we, we guarantee the, the remaining part of the contract? So what I'm trying to do is basically limit the commitment up front on our part until we see the adoption and the value of that product. But I, most of the time, I'm going to be all for it, and then I will assist the team as needed in the negotiation in terms of negotiating a better price um, and negotiating uh, add-ons or maybe if there's an implementation cost, maybe trying to reduce those or remove them completely. You are probably a very good negotiator. You strike me as such. Try to. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a big, big part of the job. Right? Absolutely, yeah, every day. How do you approach a negotiation? Are you, do you go in cold and just try to get the lowest price no matter what? Do you consider who the seller is? You know, if it's a very small startup that's selling to you, negotiating against them is like taking money out of your own pocket because if they don't have the money to build better products for you, then they're not gonna build you a good product. Negotiating against NetSuite is probably very difficult because they're massive and they just have their rules and, and you're not gonna take anything out of them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think, I think um, what I try to do is limit risk for my company first and foremost. Uh, my nightmare situation is to buy something that sits on a shelf that we don't use. An example, years ago at AdRoll, when I came on, we had bought a three-year contract, uh, multi multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars of data.com, which was Salesforce's product, and it was on the shelf. We didn't use it. We hated it, and, uh, and we knew that basically six months into it, though it predated me, and I tried to get out of the contract for two and a half years, and I was unable to do so. So we got burned on that one. So I learned, uh, I learned that uh, to try to avoid as much risk as possible for my company. So I, I'm fearful of long-term contracts and long-term commitments, even if they mean a 10 or 15% discount, it's just not worth it to me. So what I try to do is, is a win-win between uh, my company and the vendor. Um, can they knock off a little bit of money uh, on the price? That's, you know, if they can, it's great. Uh, in exchange, we're willing to serve as a reference if, if the product performs as expected. Uh, potentially, we might even be able to do a case study, things like that. We might be able to 
be able to speak on their behalf at a, at a show or something like that. So what I try to do is, is find th trade-offs between the two companies so that everyone comes out, comes ahead, comes out ahead. So now that you're at a startup that's only 25 people and you're selling to very large companies, what kind of advice do you give your salespeople so that they don't get trapped by uh, a Sam Trachtenberg on the <laughs> other side? Yeah, I, I try to show them, I, the number one rule is demonstrate the value as quickly as possible. People are busy and they're inundated with a ton of requests from vendors all over the place. I, I mean, I, my inbox gets full. So what I want, I want our team to lead with the value proposition. Did you know that using WhereTo will save you 30% on your business travel? Let me show you how. And walk them through maybe a 30 minute presentation if there's interest. Uh, we might then offer them a, a sandbox where they can actually play around with the product and then move on. And then we move into, you know, if they want to proceed, then we move into actually a deal. So, so what we're trying to do is, is be very sensitive to people's time and show the, the value of the product up front. How do you, when, when somebody approaches your company and says, hey, we've got the solution that's going to do this, and you're at a larger company, say an AdRoll, and you have internal engineering resources, what kind of process do you go through to make the decision about whether you're going to build it yourself or whether you're going to buy it from this company? Yeah, great question. I think it, um, it depends on whether you want to own the, own the IP or the, or the functionality. So is it something that should be in-house? Is it something you want to dedicate long-term resources to maintain and evolve over time? Uh, if the answer is yes, it's core. Maybe it's something, it's something that, uh, like maybe again, going back to the reporting example, maybe owning your core reporting is essential because from a security standpoint or from a PII perspective, then yes, then I would say build it in-house. Um, but if it's something that's not in your wheelhouse, it's not a core competency of your company and, there's, and it's gonna be built at the expense of something else, uh, I would argue go find the tool that does it for you. And, and really the teams that will know that are the uh, engineering teams, the people developing that, or your sales ops team, for example. That, that question comes up a lot with sales ops where a few years ago, we had a ton of uh, Salesforce developers uh, working with us at AdRoll because we're building a lot of the uh, tooling that was out there that, that was needed and the uh, capabilities. As the years went on, all these point solutions started being developed within the Salesforce ecosystem. So it's just much more easier to buy from, from these vendors than to build it in-house. And, and what that gave us was the ability to then keep our Salesforce instance really simple, but also swap out technologies as, as they evolved, as new players came into the, into the industry, into the market. Yeah, I think as an industry evolves, as the industry trying to sell products evolves and gets more and more sophisticated over time, you see that happen more and more where people are able to, uh, where large companies are able to give off something that they've been doing internally for a long time, and they're able to buy it. My, so in self-driving cars, we talk about that all the time. Because right now, the largest companies in the world have their own fleets. They operate the fleets, they take care of maintenance on the fleets, they hire the drivers, and none of them are transportation companies. Mm -hmm. You know, all your retailers, your Walmarts and Best Buys and Whole Foods and Targets, they're not transportation companies, they just need transportation in order to do what they do best, right. sell stuff. Uh, it was the same thing only, you know, five or ten years ago with data storage. Nobody was a data storage company. You just needed a place, you needed a server rack to keep all your files. Then AWS and Microsoft Azure and Google Cloud came along and all those. 
And now all of a sudden, finally a solution existed where you're able to give off that data storage to another solution that's doing it a lot better than yours. Absolutely. It, it, I'm looking to simplify our operation. I mean, when, when I came to where to two years ago, we were six people, now we're 25 people, and we needed an ATS, so we bought a... Uh, What's an ATS? An applicant tracking system okay. for uh, recruiting. So we bought a very simple... Uh, am I allowed to, use, to tell you the providers? I encourage it, yeah. Okay. Maybe they'll sponsor us next. <laughs> okay. So we bought Workable, which is a no-frills ATS. It's perfect for our size. And we never had to worry about it. All of a sudden, we, we were able to manage um, our recruiting, our, basically the way we handled uh, people interested in our company and also being able to post job openings as we were growing as a startup. Same thing with, uh, with payroll, with Gusto, with paying all our vendors with bill.com. So um, we use Gmail for, uh, for email and the G, G Docs and G, the G Suite for everything else. Uh, we, we decided to go uh, up, up, go, uh, up market with Salesforce because we know we're going to grow to need it. So these are just examples of uh, we don't want to deal with any of this stuff. And we know these are best in class. A lot of them are best in class products or if not best in class, they're appropriate for our size. So we quickly put these systems in place as we're scaling the company. And it was a no brainer. So the challenge then is, is do we swap things out when you outgrow? So, so I've, been, I've been receiving a lot of calls from other uh, ATS providers and they're like, hey, I, I know you're using Workable, but we have this larger, more robust product and the reality is uh, we don't need it. We just don't need it right now. now. Is Workable a, small, a smaller company? Yes. Awesome, so great example. Let's talk about Workable for a moment. Uh, when they came to you, mm -hmm. what was the message that they came with knowing they're a small company? I mean, we use Hire with Google. Okay. And we use a much bigger, uh, uh, much bigger product there. Why did you go with Workable? What was the message that they came to you with? You said the first thing you want to hear is what's the value. What was the value that they brought to you? That it was no frills. That I needed to know, is it easy to use? Does it require a lot of training? Or anyone to, can anyone use it? Because we don't have a dedicated recruiter at where to. So can the hiring managers just go in, post their job specs, and, and they're like, yep, it's, it's super easy, doesn't require training. It's, it was inexpensive. We got the initial pricing, which was really appealing. So to me, it was a, uh, we had so many things going on in year one here as we're trying to scale the business that I just wanted something in place that I knew would work and if we ended up outgrowing it, we would revisit it the, the following year. And sure enough, the year passed, it worked fine for us and it was a time to renew and it was a no brainer. It was, it was just easy to keep going and we're still two years into it, we're still using it. And have they developed additional tool sets for you over the course of that year or two? They have, yeah. I, 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 for us, we're still using their basic functionality, but uh, yes, they, their product has evolved. Yeah, that's where the interesting part of it gets. You know, when you're a startup selling into a startup, uh, the barrier to entry is lower. You know, all they want to do is save some money so they'll give you a shot and let you use them. I mean, they probably tell them, whether you know it or not, they probably tell everybody that they're working <laughs> with you. Uh, your logo is somewhere on somebody's marketing deck somewhere. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so they got to continue to develop their product yeah. um, un until, they're, until they're ready to smell, sell up market or, or go into bigger companies. And we were grandfathered into their pricing. Even better. You are a good negotiator, Sam. <laughs> yeah. You are tough. Um, yeah. When, when you were at Adderall, what are some of the conversations you found yourself having most often 
uh, with companies that are trying to pitch you. What were the questions that you like to ask uh, the companies that are pitching you for your business? Yeah, for sales tools, it was all about, can we test it out? Can we try it out for 30, 60, uh, 90 days? Because that to me was an easy win for both companies. I could, I could roll out a sales tool to, a, to maybe the SDR team or to a couple of sellers and say, hey, try this out and let me know what you think. And that wasn't as disruptive as replacing an entire CRM or, or a NetSuite like you were just saying earlier. So with sales tools, it was all about uh, trying things out quickly, demonstrating the value. And one thing I would ask the sellers would be, how do I know uh, what success looks like? So we would define success together. And then I would ask him, I say, hey, I am your champion internally, but I also need you to help me sell it internally. So I need to know what are the success metrics that we can then celebrate together to, to get mass adoption. So if I get two or three sellers to use this product, to love it, and, you, and we can both define what success looks like, then then potentially we could sell it to our entire, have our entire sales team on it. And that's the way I would approach uh, sales tools. Yeah, there's an interesting balance there because uh, my, my CEO likes to remind me that every salesperson is great as long as they're selling something free. <laughs> right. Um, they'll sell unlimited amounts of something free. Yeah. So, you know, for, for a salesperson, especially a quoted salesperson, um, you know, giving you the demo might be the best thing for you, but is the best thing. Maybe in the long term, but in the short term, it just feels like a win when they didn't actually bring in any revenue. Giving you a discount feels like a win because they at least made the deal, but it might not be because maybe now they're going below the margin that they need to build a better product for you guys. Mm -hmm. And you're aware of this because you're in a startup now and you don't want, you know, when you guys are negotiating with a really large company, you don't want them to go cut you in half or get another month of a free trial or push you guys over the edge. So how do you balance that dynamic in knowing that a smaller company is selling to you you know, if they give you a 90-day free trial, sure, sometimes that's just pay-to-play, and other times that might not be the right decision for them. Do you still just try to get it no matter what because it's good for you guys? No, I mean, if, if they want us to pay for it, we're willing to pay for it for the trial as well. We want to be fair. Um, but we also, we, wanna, we, wanna quickly, we don't want to waste anyone's time, so we want to evaluate the product as quickly as possible. And if it sticks, if our users love it and it's going to work, then I would want to just go ahead and structure a deal that's mutually beneficial. And again, uh, if I can get some discounting in place in exchange for a reference or case study uh, or co-marketing, we're all over that. Um, we also like flexible renewal terms. Definitely avoid multi-year contracts. Uh, we, we definitely like net 45 better than net 30, things like that. And... Um, and, and yeah, we just, we just don't want a lot of friction. And we want everyone, both parties to win. Yeah, I think that, that uh, flexible renewal term is one really, really easy win because it gives the sales company something to go for, right? You'll renew as long as you continue giving them a good service, you can get started, you can even get paid a little bit earlier, but it also tells the buyer that, hey, if you guys aren't happy, if you're not satisfied, if we're not on the same page after three, six, or 12 months, whatever the conversation is, then there is an app. That's right. right. So it makes everybody a little more comfortable with the, yeah, with the purchase. It's, it's, it should always be value-based. It's a value being the, the, that was promised being delivered. What other, you mentioned some of those non-monetary forms of compensation. What are some of the ones that you go to as quickly as, or you when you go to in your process in that negotiation, say, hey, we're not giving you any more money. 
but we'll give you blank. You mentioned case studies, you mentioned referrals. What are some examples of when you gave that and, and uh, it built into a good partnership between you and, and, and one of your vendors? Yeah, sometimes the, uh, the unit price is sacred. You, you're not gonna get discounting on that, but there's always a lot of, well, there's a lot of times that there's some uh, added on cost, like an implementation cost or a maintenance fee or whatever. And those things I try to negotiate out of the contract. Uh, I've also seen multi-year contracts with an annual 5% or 7% increase. And I'd like to I'd try to negotiate those out of the contract as well. And then uh, lastly, if it's, a, if it's a sales tool that is licensed like by users, then what I try to do is, is see if we can get additional users. So rather than knocking the price on a, on a unit basis, what we, we can say is, hey, uh, we're interested in, uh, you know, we'll pay for 12 licenses. If you, if you can make it 15 or something like that, then we maybe we, we both win. And then in terms of non-price related uh, trade, trade-offs, uh, we're, you know, we'll say we're willing to, to serve as a reference. We're willing to do a case study, uh, co-marketing, uh, anything like that to help each other, uh, to help each other out. Yeah. Have you... Do you have any examples of when you got something wrong? Yes. Like when you bought something and then three months later you're like, uh, well, there goes, you know, like the, your predecessor at Adrel who bought a few hundred thousand dollars worth of data.com. Yeah. What, what, what's an example of the time that you bought that and, and what's that story? Why, why did you do that? Yeah, that's a good, good question. Uh, it happened a lot when, uh, when, I was uh, at AdRoll with uh, sales operations, work, uh, working, uh, having the sales operations roll, roll into me. We were trying a lot of sales uh, uh, tools to uh, either sales enablement tools for the sales team, but also we were doing, we were buying a lot of technology to, to supplement the efficiency of our, of our funnel. And, and uh, we, bought a couple, we, we bought leads from a provider, thousands of leads that they were supposed to be great and we and uh, the initial test said it showed that it was it was much better than the incumbent with the solution that we had in place and then over time we, we realized the leads were were no good at scale they just weren't weren't any good Meaning so, it was just a scam or it was a bad product it was a bad fit and a bad product and I ended up having to buy something else uh, so um, we but you know what we uh, we didn't sweat it I mean we want a, an element of experimentation I mean, we're, we're here in, in the valley, right? And, and t with tech companies, with new ideas and new technologies popping up every day. So we want our teams, in particular our, our sales team, to try out different things so they can have that competitive advantage. And we know that sometimes we're gonna buy something that, that's not right. And that's why I'm all focused on limiting risk. Like in retrospect, I should have bought less of the leads rather than seeking out that 20% discount that I got for getting 25,000 leads or whatever it may have been, I, I should have scraped the, uh, scrapped the uh, discount and said, okay, give me a thousand and go with, and then let's do another thousand and just incrementally buy it. So from my perspective, I always encourage innovation, taking risks, trying dif different things, um, but as long as uh, we don't have a long-term commitment. And, and what's sacred is uh, in my role, you can't disrupt day-to-day -day business operations, which I have a, a great story for you from way back when. So, so at Adderall, we, we looked at a, um, at a telephone technology. We're changing the vendor 
of our, our telephone system our, and uh, with our IT team was looking to do that. And, and they, were, they were certain that this was gonna be a great thing we were gonna do. Uh, we we're gonna get rid of the telephones at AdRoll and you, all the sellers, we had an entire floor of sellers, like 75 sellers selling, they were gonna sell um, from using headsets on their, on their computers. And uh, they had tested it out with, with uh, a group of 10 people to mix reviews and the buy-in wasn't there from, from leadership, uh, in particular CRO, that it just wasn't bought and people weren't bought in and even from, from uh, sales managers, the VP of sales, yet the, uh, the, the vendor was pressuring our IT team so much to do it that the IT team basically was saying, okay, we're gonna do it anyway and we're gonna do it over July 4th. So I get wind of this and I find out around June 30th, right before we go on holiday, that when we come back on July 6th, um, there are gonna be no phones on the floor, even though no, none of the sellers have been trained to use this new tool. We're just gonna take away the physical forms that, that are in place. So I immediately, I, uh, I was like, this is gonna be a disaster. We can't do this. And what, what, you said the vendor was just pressuring your IT team. I mean, what, is, what does that look like? I, I, I like to think that I'm a decent salesperson, but I've never pressured <laughs> 75 people into taking away their phones. I, I think that's, uh, I'm being kind. Uh, I think it was a bad uh, decision by our IT team. Okay. And um, in bottom line, you can't just show up to work and have no phones. <laughs> We're, how are people going to dial so uh <laughs> without being trained on the new technology so i put the brakes on it and i just it was like i don't care how much it costs whatever whatever we do we cannot show up to work the first day back from the holiday without giving people the ability to, to call which is what essential essentially essential for our sales team so so we did that and um we ended up, apparently there was a three-year deal signed with this vendor and we had to negotiate it uh, I had to figure out an out for this. It, we have to get uh, legal involved. Uh, and ultimately, I ended up creating a, a settlement with this company and, and, and solving that problem. But it was, it was terrible. It, it, it was terrible as it was, and it could have been even worse had we allowed that to go through. And you just sometimes have to put on the brakes and say, can't do it. Wow, that opens up a whole can of wormy questions. <laughs> I'm, uh, so yeah. Tell me, you mentioned two minutes ago that you know, you're in the valley and you want to be a little risk-taking. You want to enable the people below you to make decisions that they believe is right. In the aftermath of something like this, where the IT team did something so seemingly wrong, what was the repercussion or what was the conversation like in the next days with whichever individual put their name on that contract? Um, I'll just say it didn't go well uh, for the, for the uh, people making the those decisions um, but we also formalized our procurement process a lot more so um, I recommend a product called Zylo Z-Y-L-O which is a, uh, a, a, uh, a software that allows you to track all the vendors at a large company it also tells you number of licenses uh, cost paid uh, the, when the contract is due and just some keynotes so it allows you basically vendor management uh, system and we rolled that out at, at Admiral um, we had a process where people, uh, department heads, had to request uh, assistance for evaluating certain tools. So we, we locked it down a little bit more. And again, if it's for sales tools, like, hey, I, I want to try 
gong or, or a chorus or anything like that, no problem because that's, that's easy. That doesn't impact, that doesn't have the potential of, impact, of, of disrupting the business. But for uh, large uh, software purchases, we, we put a little bit more of a process and it worked fine after that. Now, how do you think the vendor thought of, you know, a week after this whole event or say on, uh, on August 1st, things have passed, everyone's settled, we, we, the lawyers are finally done doing their thing. Do you think they considered this a win because they just got a paycheck for not really doing anything? Or was this a major loss for them because now they got some money but they don't have a client? Yeah, unfortunately, um, the more research we, we did was, uh, we learned that, that this was, uh, that the vendor has had had these type of issues before. So we were thrilled not to be in partnership with them for multiple years. And, and just one point of uh, clarification, we were gonna get the lawyers, but in the end, if you, um, it's so much easier just to sit at the table and have a business negotiation. No one wanted to get lawyers involved. So it was myself with their head of sales and we had to figure out a, a breakup, an amicable breakup, and that's what we did. What are the questions now after an experience like that? What kind of diligence do you do on the products that you buy? What should sellers be aware of that, hey, when, when you're going to a company with a sophisticated COO, they are going to learn this about you, or they're going to ask you these questions. Yeah. What questions are those? Yeah, I want to know what sentiment is on their product. You know, I'm going to ask them, you know, what's the NPS? Uh, do you have three re referenceable customers I can speak to? Uh, I'll go to G2 and see what people are saying about that. What's G2? It's where people put uh, uh, reviews on product reviews. So crowdsource reviews, I'll go into LinkedIn, uh, see if I have any connections with any person uh, from that company and, and, and maybe ping them if, if need be, depending on the size of the deal. So I'll do my homework, I'll back channel as much as I can. I'll ask my peers, I'll say, hey, have you ever used this technology? I'll go into message boards or, or user groups that I'm a part of and ask, uh, can anyone uh, give me their opinion on this product versus their top competitor and so forth. So I'll do my homework. And, and, I, and then if it comes, if it, everything comes out clean, then, then we're good. Yeah, what's interesting is that, so when you're selling a product, you would hope that the salesperson is doing as much or more homework on you. They should know who the COO is, they should know who else is gonna be involved, they should have found your LinkedIn, they should know where you went to college, uh, <laughs> they should go heels, they should know uh, who else is in the deal, they should know what product, they should know all these things, but very often they haven't done the homework, you're just a name on the list and they shoot you an email, hey, do you want my product, call it a day. But now, knowing how much homework you are doing about them, uh, that tips the scales very much against the seller unless they come prepared. So that's where, you know, when for all the uh, blog posts and information and everything out there that says if you're selling a product, you need to know everything about the prospect as an individual, all the blog posts they've written, everything that the company is currently doing, you gotta read the quarterly reports, <laughs> knowing that you're gonna be doing something very similar to the seller, hopefully incentivizes that kind of research. Yeah, I mean, depends on the size of the deal. If Naturally, you're doing enterprise yeah. sales, for sure, like like a large deal, for sure. Um, if, if I was to say, you know, what's the one thing I wish more uh, sales folks um, had towards their buyer, like, and I'm always the buyer getting their they're put, being put into their sequent, automated sequences or getting the cold calls even, it would just be empathy. Uh, I, I would just appreciate some empathy. So, so an example would be uh, someone calls you and says, hey, I have the greatest um, marketing automation system 
you know, uh, what do you, and if they say, what are you currently using? And I, t and I tell them, and I'll also say, hey, by the way, my contract's not due till next November, then that, that pretty much should end the conversation in my opinion, because I'm locked to a contract for next year. And in the the, the thing I would seek for would be someone to say, hey, sounds like you're, you're in it for next year. How about if I call you next spring or in the middle of summer and we can revisit it? And I would say, wonderful, great, thank you. And we hang up and everyone's time is saved. But instead, um, a lot of, lot of uh, sales folks try to move into telling me why their product is better than the incumbent. And as much as I'd love to sell it, uh, trade it, especially if I inherited the product, uh, a lot of times my hands are tied. Uh, it can't be, sometimes it's not broken to the point where you're gonna just replace the system in place just because you don't have the resources or you have a bit more uh, important priorities. So empathy there is one. Uh, another example of, of empathy needed would be, um, Sam, here is why our product is better. Uh, it has 98% user adoption. It has uh, NPS score of, of 47 of uh, 47 uh it 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 helps with uh, speeds up the, the it gives you deal cycle it speeds up your deal cycle it boosts revenue it lowers costs whatever it may be if they can arm me with that those data points and then if somehow we can prove some of them out within a with a trial or a short-term yeah with it was a short-term assessment then we have a win-win so instead i get a lot of calls saying Hey Sam, it's the 27th of the month and I'm trying to hit quota, so great news for you. I'm gonna discount 30% of what I have. And I'm like, I don't know your product, I don't know what you're trying to do. Or the other day someone called me and said, hey Sam, my manager uh, added you and where to to our key list of, of prospects. So now I'm calling you. <laughs> yeah, so I'm calling you because my manager said to call you. And uh, I was like, oh, that's awesome. I think uh, so, <laughs> honored to be on your manager's list. Yeah. So, so again, it's, it's about them rather than the buyer's needs. So if I was to say one thing, it's, it's empathy, you know, uh, people are busy. They're, they're, they're being other vendors, non-competing vendors from other tools are calling also. So how do you quickly get, uh, make your, your point, uh, without wasting some, uh, the buyer's time. Awesome, Sam. Well, I think empathy is a fantastic note to leave this on. Uh, I want to switch to a few fire round questions here. Sure. Uh, I'll ask them quickly. You can take your sweet time to answer them. Uh, what is one of your favorite uh, startup or operations or sales books? I like uh, Scaling Up. Scaling Up. Yeah. Cool. Uh, who is somebody in your early career that was a real mentor to you and what did you learn? Yeah. Um, Kevin Lee. He was my uh, first manager at Accenture when I was in my early 20s. And he he just outworked everybody he was there early stayed late looked deeper into pro problems than anyone else and and he wanted he drove me to be a leader and to and to get out of my comfort zone he he always used to tell me if if, if i come in and i always see you sitting at your desk uh you're not doing your job as, as a manager i want to see you out of your chair walking around and doing what you do best and multiplying your effect on, on the team. And, and that stuck with me. And, and he's the CEO of the company in Atlanta. I, um, I years later, 20, 20 plus years later, I still remember the lessons that I learned and I, I admire him greatly. I like that. Uh, on the sales side of that, I interviewed a guy named Scott Lease. 
uh, who's been a VP at six different companies uh, quite successfully, and he said that if you're the kind of VP at an early stage company who's gonna go in and sit at your computer and look on spreadsheets all day, you're not the kind of VP anybody's looking for. <laughs> That's right, same yeah. thing, exactly. Uh, what is one of the favorite email subject lines you have ever received? Ooh. Um, the other day I got one that had someone's name and then it had uh, like the two uh, symbols. It was like Joe and then um, Sam or something like that. So I thought it was, it, it was just their name, your name. Yeah. I was like, oh, there's a connection. We know each other or something. <laughs> and I answered and it was, uh, it was a cold email, but I, I thought it was, it was, uh, it was neat. I was like, oh, I thought at first I knew the person and, and I didn't, but I thought it was clever. Was it very tailored or did it look automated? Um, you did first name, little symbols, Sam. Yeah. When I look back at it, it's probably automated, but it <laughs> caught my eye. Gotcha. I got you open. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, what is a favorite failure of yours? In other words, a failure that has perhaps later on led to some success? Ooh, great question. Well, we covered the... Uh, I was I was implicated in the uh, in the phone yeah. phone problem, yeah. so uh, I don't know. Uh, let's see. I think the failure would be uh, when I was at at uh, Admiral. Uh, we 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 were uh, dependent on when we, we we with our sales sales ops team. I think there was too much complexity in our uh, Salesforce instance. And it led to questions about where the leads coming from and, and lead accuracy, are they being routed correctly and so forth. And I think in retrospect, uh, I learned just keep it simple. Try to untangle as much as possible, bring everyone in to the table, whether you have different stakeholders from different teams cross-functionally, uh, allow them to lend their perspective and don't work in a silo. So one of my mantras now is, is assume good intent and also work transparently. 100% just bring your true self to work every day every conversation and then have fun when you do that then then work is really really fun beautiful uh, Sam that's a fantastic place to finish this off uh, where can people learn more about you about where to and about what you got going on yeah um, where to.com uh, if you're looking for a an innovative um, new technology and business travel please check out where to.com uh, where to is a AI-based business travel site is awesome. Uh, we're, we're innovating. The, the st kind of stuff we've done in the last two years is, is uh, really inspiring for me, seeing what our team does. And uh, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, happy to connect to anyone. I, I love conversations about operational efficiency, um, building high-performing teams. Those are basically my passions and leadership. That's what I spend my time thinking about reading and discussing. All right, just remember, if you're trying to sell Sam a product, just put your name, little symbol, <laughs> Sam, yes. sold, I'll, millions of dollars. I'll, I'll reply immediately. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, Sam, this has been a ton of fun. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Well, there you have it. Sam Trachtenberg, ladies and gentlemen. Buyers are trying to minimize risk. Sellers need to implement without affecting day-to-day -day operations. And all a buyer wants from a seller a little bit of empathy. If you want to learn more about Sam and about Where To, his current company, check out whereto.com, W-H-E-R-E-T-O.com. They are awesome for all your business travel needs. If you want to learn more about that or just look up Sam Trachtenberg on LinkedIn, that's spelled Sam, of course, 
Trachtenberg, T-R-A-C-H-T-E-N-B-E-R-G. Uh, if you liked our podcast today, leave us a review. Pretty, pretty, please leave us a review or a rating as long as it's five stars. If not, just find me on Twitter or on Instagram at alubarski2 and we'll find a way to make it all better. Thanks and happy selling.